Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hi, this is Adam Justice, one of the new hosts of the Smart Home Show. For the past few years, I've attended Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, otherwise known as WWDC. And myself and my co-host Richard usually like to talk about what's going on there. This year, we're doing this in two parts. This episode is coming to you a little quicker than you should expect for our usual release cadence. But we wanted to set the stage before WWDC to talk about the state of HomeKit and where we think it's going. Next week, we'll dive into what Apple's announced and how we see those things impacting both product companies and consumers. We hope you enjoy this first part in our HomeKit doubleheader. Hey everyone, it's Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined by my co-host Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Before we get into Smart Home Talk, I have a question for Richard to open the show. So today's question for Richard is, tell us a little bit about the origin of your Twitter personality. So first of all, (laughs) plug for Richard. Uh, You should go follow him on Twitter. And when you do, you won't just see Richard there. So tell us a little bit about that. When I first joined Twitter, wow, I think probably about 11 years ago, they had already started up. I missed the big intro. But when I found out about it, I was intrigued by it. And so I created this account called What I Learned. And it was based off of this concept of I liked the idea of trying to identify something that I've learned every single day. And my intent was that every day I'll go out and I'll post something about, okay, this is the thing that I learned today and share it with everybody who's listening in 140 characters or less. And then when I started thinking about it, I'm like, well, Really, there are more things in this world that annoy me than I'm learning about. At least that's how my life seems to go. So I'll create this account also called What Annoys Me. And then that all seems so negative. So then I created one called What Impresses Me and a handful of others over time. And along the way, somewhere I picked up at Richard Gunther, but I never used it. It was just sitting there. I was just squatting on it. And I figured someday I'll do something with this. But I always spoke in these other personalities individually. And then people started paying attention to, oh, well, how many followers does so-and-so have? And I'm like, nobody on Twitter. So my numbers are still really low, but I was splitting my followers. I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't help at all. So I'll consolidate them all. And I ended up paying for the service that retweeted all of my different personalities as at Richard Gunther. So that service now in the state of tech, which changes constantly, doesn't exist anymore. And I just do it manually. But rest assured that if you follow Richard Gunther, you will get, as you said, a number of different voices and perspectives from Richard Gunther's brain. And not all of them follow that formula that I was just talking about, too. So you may get a couple extras in there that 
you might have to think about, hmm, is that Richard? That might be Richard. Well, I think they're all mostly pictures of Richard in various states, too. So there you go. Yep. Mostly. Mostly. Cool. Well, thanks for answering that. And if you want to ask a question for us to open the show, feel free to send us a question with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard on Twitter. Okay. So now, since we're coming up on WWDC, um, we wanted to kind of do a little bit of a HomeKit State of the Union. And just to set things straight, right? You're going again. Yes, I will be there uh, live in person. I've been extremely lucky to be able to go. Uh, this will be my fourth year in a row and uh, very much looking forward to it. Cool. So, yeah, we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, where HomeKit is today, you know, in ahead of WWDC. So um, for those of you who don't know, HomeKit was announced at a WWDC in 2014. And before we got on this call, Richard and I were like, wow, I mean, can't believe it's been that long. Right. Five years. Five years ago, it was announced. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was super excited about this when it was first announced five years ago. I think I immediately hopped on and did an interview on Stacy's podcast. This was an ultimate intersection for me of uh, things I was really interested in. Mm-hmm you know, wearing my Apple fanboy uh, hat and uh, and being interested in this space. Yeah. And understandably, because Apple has a history of kind of coming into a space and really thinking through how to do it right. They also have a history of taking their time to do it right. And I think we're going to end up talking about that a little bit too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about what what HomeKit's all about too. So I think this is, you know, something that not a lot of people understand. And and this actually plays into a little bit about why it's been a little bit slower of an effort and an uptake by people. So the main thing to know about HomeKit in terms of its differentiation from integrating with Amazon or Google is that it's primarily an effort that's done on the firmware of the device. So this is mostly due to the fact that HomeKit is actually a local protocol. So all the communication that goes on is on a local network. You can still reach HomeKit devices remotely, um, that, but that's done through a hub device like an Apple TV or a HomePod um, and things like that. So, but all of that other communication happens locally on the network. And what's nice about that is that allows all those devices to talk to each other, to control each other, and work seamlessly and things like that. But the effort to do that is not necessarily a small one. So when this was announced in 2014, the chain of things that would happen after that, and anytime something new gets announced, and we'll talk more about that later too, is that a spec is written and then... Most of the time, what happens is the chipset providers, that would be like your Wi-Fi chipset, your Bluetooth chipset, things like that, then have to implement those changes. And then people who are making products have to then implement that in the context of their products. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that happens quickly or easily, but through all that, it, it becomes, you know, very robust and, you know, working well. So, I mean, a little bit of context for us and kind of our history with HomeKit 
is that, you know, I was watching that WWDC in our office, just like everybody else. Uh, and when that was announced, we were just coming off a project where we had released some Wi-Fi based sensors. We were trying to figure out what are we going to do next? You know, we, this was kind of our first IOT product. It was going pretty well. You know, what was going to be next for us? And I particularly wanted to do something in the, in the home automation space. And so, um, when HomeKit was announced, you know, it was like, all right, let's throw some ideas on the wall and see what we, what do we want to do? And kind of the only outlet game at the time was, uh, Belkin Wemo. And it was kind of a hot mess in, in 2014. <laughs> it didn't work very well. It wasn't very reliable. Um, so we were like, all right, well, this is a good idea and we'll do something different. We'll do a dual plug and we'll, you know, we'll be HomeKit supported. And I actually wanted to do support for a cloud backend as well at the time. But it turned out that uh, the chips that we were using only had enough code space to do HomeKit only. So early on, that was our HomeKit only kind of thing. And actually, our my proud badge of honor that uh, our team has is we were actually the first people to ever get a product certified for HomeKit. Oh, wow. Nice. I didn't realize that. I knew that you were in the first wave. Yeah. So we weren't the first ever to release a product. That's an important distinction because we were kind of <laughs> new to the whole building consumer products thing. But yeah, we were the first to ever get a device certified. And, you know, we were working very closely and, you know, running a lot of re revisions of that. And yeah, we got that product out. We announced it at CES 2015 and, and shipped it later, later that year. Cool. So yeah, it was a fun experience and uh, I guess an experience in what it's like living on the bleeding edge. I don't always necessarily want to be in the bleeding edge of things like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a good experience nonetheless. Well, and I, I know that you're not going to be able to talk too much about that experience, but I, I know from talking with other companies and observing other companies, it seems like you guys came out of that experience in pretty good shape, like with a, a solid product that got a good reception and was popular enough that you decided to rev it. Whereas there are other companies who release products early that I feel like to this day are still licking their wounds. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's some things we can't necessarily talk about, but um, I will say, you know, if you're interested in building a home kit product, um, you need to join the MFI program, which MFI stands for, and once back in the day, it was made for iPod, but now it's made for iPhone, iPad, you know, all of the above. So once you do that, then you can get access to all the specs and things like that. And yeah, you're right. They don't like us talking too much about inside baseball, but everybody, I think, basically knows that there's a certification process for those devices and that's to ensure the quality and that everybody is complying with that. And I think some people have a harder time with that than others. But, you know, I think if you, some of that goes back to working with the chipset providers and, and having a good chipset that has good home kit support. And they've mm -hmm. done some things in the background since then to make that whole process a lot simpler too. So yeah, I think it's definitely come a long way and, and gotten a lot better since then. Now, one of the things that you haven't talked about is while you've talked about chips and you've talked about all local control, 
Specifically, we're talking about Wi-Fi control and or Bluetooth control on HomeKit devices. Those are really the only radio protocols I'm aware of that can be used in HomeKit. Is that correct? That is correct natively. Okay. There are folks that have a a proprietary protocol or some other protocol bridged to HomeKit. So I think a good example of this is like Lutron. So Lutron uses their same, uh, I think it's like a 900 megahertz protocol to a bridge, and then that bridge talks HomeKit from there. Yep. And that's how you have some devices that aren't HomeKit devices integrated with HomeKit. All of them, you'll find, have this sort of bridge or hub device acting as the mediator. Right. Another good example would be Philips Hue. They use Zigbee. Um, so they've got their Zigbee bridge to HomeKit. So yeah, then it just kind of depends on which device is then certified. And anytime somebody says, okay, well, we're just going to release a generic bridge that's going to support XYZ, uh, I always call uh, BS on that because the tried and true rule of this is that you have to certify all the endpoints that go with that hub. So you can't just say, I'm going to build a bridge that'll make everything HomeKit. That cannot happen. You have to have a specific bridge and testing all the specific endpoints that will work with it ever. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really curious to see what Abode ends up delivering with their Zigbee Z-Wave security hub that they have very publicly stated will be HomeKit compatible later this year. Okay. We'll see. That's another right. one. I, I, when that was announced, I was like, this is not what people think it is. It's it, They're going to have to certify specific endpoints. And I don't know what the rules are in terms of whether or not those can be other people's endpoints or their own. But I know that you have to define everything that will work with that bridge at, at a given time. And that's how we know that it works today. We're going into WWDC, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but is there, in your opinion, a possibility that Apple could possibly change that to instead have to certify to a very precise profile as opposed to device? I don't know. I mean, that that could certainly be one way that they could open things up that would maybe change adoption and things like that. But... I don't know. Based on our experience of working with them to date, I think they want to certify everything and it, it comes down to security, privacy, things like that. So they don't want rogue actors that haven't been tested on this ecosystem. And I think that's a good sure. thing. I think that that keeps things working well, that keeps things safe. And, you know, those are things they take extremely seriously. So, right. And to that end, they had very specific hardware requirements for devices that were a part of HomeKit before. They have since relaxed those and allowed you to now do your, I, I believe it all kind of came down to encryption, that you could do your encryption through software on your device. It didn't have to be on their approved hardware anymore. But all of that was their intent to ensure a secure environment. Yeah. Um, so 
uh, like you said, the from early on the and that's another reason why everything wasn't HomeKit immediately was that it initially required a hardware authentication chip, um, and so we actually had to see people redesign products and put this chip in their next rev. 2017, they announced software authentication, and everybody was like, "Woohoo! It's gonna you know everything's gonna be HomeKit now." I don't know that it's that simple and. Two things happen in, in that time. The the chips that got put in for authentication became a lot cheaper. They became out, came out with a new version of that. And there's some server-side stuff you have to do to support software authentication that I haven't actually done it yet, but it's not simple or trivial. And so it becomes this kind of build versus buy equation of do you want to build out this server infrastructure and be responsible for that and certify that? Or do you want to just pay a nominal fee to add this chip to your bomb? So I think the software authentication model makes sense for people like Wemo who are have a ton of devices in the field and can support a whole back catalog. And I know they were they were the first ones to get this out. I'm, <clears throat> I'm not sure who else has done um, this type of authentication now, but I think right. it's, it's definitely a volume thing. If unless you have millions of devices or, you know, hundreds of thousands, I think the equation still makes more sense to just put the chip on it. I was just going to point out that it was Wemo, perhaps serendipitously enough, that ultimately ended up being the first to integrate that software authentication or or pairing. But what... <laughs> Who else? Has anybody else done it? I am not aware of any other product out there that's using the software-based encryption. So if they are, If they are, they're not talking about it, but right. that's fine. Okay. So on our, our history, we skipped over something, which was 2016. So 2016, uh, WWDC again, we got the home app. What do you remember about that announcement in 2016? Were you excited? I was very excited because... Up to then, everybody, meaning all of the device manufacturers like you and Lutron and Ecobee and everyone else, had to kind of figure out how to support HomeKit themselves in their own apps. And everybody, there are basically two different approaches you could take. You could take the approach where, okay, we see and therefore let you control everything out in the HomeKit world, or we only allow you to control our devices in the app, but our app enables you to kind of tie it into the HomeKit ecosystem. And so you ended up with this kind of mishmash of different apps. Each app implemented different pieces of HomeKit that were available, either in terms of scenes or automations or what have you. Arguably, I think that at the time, the app that your company, ConnectSense, put out was probably the most robust in terms of what you could do with automation rules, because a lot of the other apps weren't supporting that or only had a small little piece of that. So when Home finally came out from Apple, it kind of gave everybody a North Star. It gave developers an idea of, okay, here's kind of what you could do. And it gave homeowners a place that without doing anything, without having to install a specific app or, or anything else, 
they had a place, a home base, if you will, on their phone or on their tablet where they could go and control stuff in their home. And I think that was very, very smart. And I'm really, frankly, surprised they didn't do it from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we were all so excited about it at the time. And obviously, anytime there's a default app installed on all the iPhones that are out there in the world, uh, that's a great you know, thing for somebody to go, oh, what's this app? What does this do? Um, and kind of explore because at the time, HomeKit was still pretty niche and maybe everybody didn't know about it, but this was kind of a a grand unveiling to the rest of the world and to regular people of like, this is, this is what this is. And Apple putting their stamp on it of like, hey, we're serious about this. We're going to install this as a default app. Yeah, absolutely. I liked it. Plus, it takes some of the burden off of application developers. I know that Sylvania, for example, made the conscious decision to not bother coming out with an app for their HomeKit devices when they started releasing HomeKit devices because they they figured that they don't need to create a control app. The only thing that they have is something that allows them to update firmware. And geez, I hope we see that built into HomeKit itself so that every manufacturer doesn't have to build their own firmware updater because that seems really inefficient. Yeah. I mean, to go back about the the pre-home app days, like you said, we made the decision that we were going to be a full aggregator app and fully support every profile at the time and all the things you could do in HomeKit. And I was pretty proud of our team. And they put out a really solid app and I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good offering at the time. And the home app kind of changed our thinking on that a little bit. You know, we were trying to support every profile, be kind of a best in class citizen. And like you said, it, it sort of released our need to do that once the home app was there. I think the home app is good at being kind of that generic one place to do everything in a pretty basic way. Mm -hmm. But there's still room for everybody to build a best in breed experience for their own devices in their app, as well as things like updating firmware, um, which is important. And the challenge there is everybody does it in a different way. Everybody has yeah. different backend systems. Yeah. So Apple could certainly do something here, but I think it's always going to be a challenge. But I think it's still important for people to have their own apps, too, because the experience you're going to have it for your devices in the home app is going to be, you know, the same across the board and you got to differentiate your offering. So I think one example for us in our, in our outlets has been um, power monitoring and the ability to trigger on power monitoring. So there's no official power usage characteristic in, in HomeKit. So we have to do a custom characteristic for that. And then in our app, we support that. So we can actually do things like uh, one of the coolest I've ever seen was somebody had our outlet plugged into a projector. And then anytime that projector powered on and it detected that it was pulling power, then it would automatically dim the lights. So that's the kind of thing you can't do in, in the home app. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So yeah, as we've gotten updates, you know, I mentioned some categories that's sort of been something every year. Every year we've gotten new categories. These have been things like cameras, video doorbells, 
uh, faucets. I think the most recent one that we got was TVs. And the latest version of iOS supported everything that they're doing around the various TV manufacturers that are supporting HomeKit uh, slowly rolling out throughout this year. So that's something that's pretty standard. Every year we get some new TV profiles and things like that. Some new HomeKit profiles. HomeKit profiles, yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned video doorbells. I think that was a really important one because that was actually a good example of the first time that they natively supported like dual devices, devices that had multiple purposes. I guess a compound device is probably a better way of referring to that. And so with video doorbells, it was both the combination of a video camera and some sort of doorbell or controller that you were responding to. So so that gave device manufacturers the opportunity to jump on board. And of course, we all thought, ring, ring. Now we understand why that ring logo is up there. Well, we still are waiting for that, but we can, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll see that change yeah. next week. We can talk about that in our rumor section later. <laughs> so I think the other thing last year that was announced was this integration with Control 4, Crestron, and Savant. I haven't seen anything on this. Have you seen any any of this come to fruition yet? Yes. Actually, Savant at Lightfair announced their integration with HomeKit. So HomeKit will expose, I don't believe all, but many Savant devices now, which is a really, really cool thing. And presumably Control 4 and Creston are kind of on a path to do the same sort of thing. Now, Control 4 just came out with their major new announcement of their big software update. So they are completely overhauling their home software it, it with a 3.0 version, I wouldn't be surprised if we see in short order that that will also provide some sort of HomeKit integration, but they have not yet announced that. So yeah, and then the other thing we got last year was the Home app on the Mac. So this was part of, you know, they kind of announced on the Mac that we're going to do this new thing. It's coming next year. They called it Sneak Peek. All the rumors said the internal name was called Marzipan, but... Um, basically, the idea was they were taking iOS apps and putting them on the Mac. And so one of their examples of iOS apps on the Mac was the Home app. So I don't know. I'm running the latest version of Mac OS. I've got the Home app on there. I rarely, if ever, use this. I mean, it's, I guess, kind of nice to have, but doesn't do much for me. Do you use it at all? Bingo. Right. You just You just identified the problem with it. I think... Marzipan is going to be everybody's opportunity to build terrible, terrible applications for the desktop because desktop application use and phone and tablet device and application use are different. Your scenarios for why you're at one place or another is usually different. The types of things that we would probably want to do with HomeKit are not necessarily suitable to an app dedicated for HomeKit. Maybe setting up automations or stuff like that. Maybe that would be a little bit better on a desktop than on a phone, for example. But honestly, I feel like we need stuff like like sidebar widgets or something like that to make HomeKit integration on the desktop useful. Just shortcuts to the quick stuff that 
I would want to get to relatively easily without having to pull up my app. You know, I, I want to maybe adjust my office lights where I'm sitting right now. I had to open my app and go to the thing that adjusts apps or I had to speak out to my Echo device that was sitting over there. If I just had something right over here on my notification area where I had a shortcut that I could trigger, that would be a lot more useful. They're not making that sort of stuff available yet. I hope they do. I hope that's something that we see. But as of now, no, I don't use it that much. And 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 I'm afraid that we're just going to get everybody saying, okay, now my app is available both on your mobile device and on your desktop. So shut up. You have a desktop app now. We're good. And look, see, we knew that everyone was going to make the desktop and the mobile devices the same OS. That's clearly what they're doing. No, that's not what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we'll see some evolution of the home app, uh, both on iOS and uh on, and the Mac, but I think, yeah, obviously this was an early preview and that's basically what they did. It was like the iPad version just on the Mac. And oh, by the way, you also couldn't set anything up via it. So it wasn't super useful for that either. <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll get there. And um, certainly there will be two ways of doing these uh, iOS apps on the Mac. There will be the people that put in the time and effort to do it right. And there will be the people who just click a button and say it's done. And I hope more people do do the first one and, and actually put in the effort and do it right. I hope so too. It's kind of like building an application for multiple platforms. If you're building for iOS and for Android and you want to take advantage of the best capabilities of that device and make your users on that device feel somewhat at home you can't just build something that's completely generic, works the same, looks the same, does everything exactly the same, and mirrors nothing about the environment that it's on. You're, you're missing the point. So what I'm hoping is that this tool set enables developers who want to be able to platform on both the desktop and on mobile, gives them the opportunity to do that but also helps them understand how to optimize an experience for the desktop versus a mobile device. Yeah, I'm actually hoping too that it helps people put together better mobile experiences too. So if you're going to put in the effort to do desktop right, then you actually build out a better experience for the iPad. And I think if they can align those two, then it's going to be a good best of both worlds scenario. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. So this kind of ran us through how we got to where we are on HomeKit. Is there anything that we missed here on on telling this story? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think we've, in terms of devices, it's it's slowly grown over time. I think, as you mentioned, there was, you know, five or six initial at launch. Um, we were shortly after that initial window and yeah, we've just seen it kind of grow steadily every year, every CES, there's a few more devices announced, you know, and then a little bit after that, eventually they ship and stuff like that. So I think, so I'm going to throw something in there because while you're talking, I, I think we did miss something and I hadn't thought of this. Siri is a big part of this picture, right? This is, their voice control. And in fact, I know that there were HomeKit product vendors who from day one 
advertise this as use Siri to control your X. Like that was their whole marketing plan for their home kit device was you could control it with Siri. And how cool was that going to be? And to some extent it is, but it's just one channel, right? Siri is a piece of this. And then as a result, they came out with HomePod and HomePod ties into the Siri ecosystem and therefore into your HomeKit ecosystem. So that's a piece of this that we didn't really talk about. All of this stuff has come so slowly. I think that's one of the things that I take away from all of this. And we mentioned this when we started was that Apple comes in and they approach things very methodically, but they've gotten a lot of flack and there's the appearance that they're not doing as well as the other ecosystems because they are taking such a methodical approach toward implementing this. Yeah. And I mean, I know people aren't always super high on on Siri and her capabilities or how responsive. And I think that's gotten better over time. Uh, Certainly, if you haven't used it in a long time, I would encourage you to try it out and see where it is today, because I think it's, it's come a long way. And, you know, there were some interesting things that got added to the mix with shortcuts and stuff like that. And, and the home can be mixed in there as well as part of that. But yeah, I, st- I still think it has some work to do and, and improvements to be made there for sure. Yeah, I would agree. Well, Adam, why don't we take a quick break in the possible event that we have some sponsors this week. And if that's the case, then you'll hear from us in about a minute or two. If not, we'll be right back. Okay. So next, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we expect for WWDC 2019. So Richard, tell us a little bit about kind of some of the rumors that have been floating around here. Always, always. You can count on free Apple announcement rumors, right? In fact, if I remember correctly, I think... For the last couple of iPhones we've had, as soon as the announcement for the iPhone was over, there were already rumors for what was going to be in the next iPhone. Yeah, there's certainly a rumor culture. I, I think it comes out of Apple's secrecy. So they have this culture of secrecy, which then breeds this culture of people who are, you know, digging at and clawing at every which little piece of information they can find and putting out these rumors. Right. And now, as far as we're concerned, what we really care about are products, whether they're software or tools or physical products, physical devices that would play in the HomeKit ecosystem that have something to do with your connected home. So from... That perspective, probably the biggest rumor that we've heard has been that there will be an update to the home app itself. Yeah. And not just a a minor update, some sort of major update to kind of look at the home more holistically. Yeah. So, I mean, we mentioned earlier that home app was released in 2016. There really hasn't been much updated or tweaked or changed about it since then. I remember, so one of the aspects of WWDC are these labs where it's a great opportunity to actually sit down and talk to the engineers that work on HomeKit stuff. So I happened to find myself next to somebody who worked on the Home app and I was like, what changed? What's different? He's like, well, we did some work, but 
yeah, this, that, you know, like he didn't have a lot because my impression, you know, there was this big story last year was that they were focusing on quality, stability, speed, things like that. So I think a lot of things that were on the table for last year got shelved and moved out to this year. So this may have been one of them. Do you get the feeling that they are, I don't know how to ask this so that you're going to be able to answer it. And if you can't answer it, I totally understand. But as you're saying that, I have to wonder, okay, well, I mean, did they really have to go back and is their team so small? And is this so little of a priority for them compared to everything else that they ended up having to backlog things that were planned for more immediate implementation? That's frustrating to me. And maybe I won't ask you the question if you don't want to answer it. I'll just kind of theorize. Yeah. I mean, I think all of that just comes around in general to, you know, I think at one time it was just hurry, 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 rush, get things out the door. And last year was definitely a year where they were like, all right, hold on. Let's focus on quality. Let's focus on speed, reliability, getting things support on, you know, more devices, things like that. And I actually thought iOS 12 was really good for that. Um, it didn't have a huge number of tentpole features, but it was really solid. It ran, you know, one of their things they announced last year was that it would actually run faster on older phones, which used to be this huge rumor that right. was like, oh, don't upgrade your OS because it's going to make your phone slower. And it's this conspiracy that they just want you to buy a new phone, yada, yada, yada. And they were like, no, we're going to do right by our users and make sure that it runs well on old devices. And the, the rumor was, or somebody said that they were actually making Apple engineers use old devices for months at a time to ensure that. <laughs> to experience the frustration themselves. Exactly. I think that's a really smart idea. Yeah. So I would always say, I'd rather you take your time and do it right and do it justice to you know, put out good stuff and make sure it's solid and tested and things like that. So that was kind of my impression of why this happened and whether or not the home app was part of that. I, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But, you know, I always want them to take their time and, and do it right. And listen, I, I've maybe said this before, but everybody I've met on the HomeKit engineering team are really good people. They are really passionate about this. They work really hard and, you know, they want what's best for this ecosystem and to move the ball forward. So, um, you know, I always you know, make sure when, when I do get a chance to see them that, you know, tell them how much I appreciate their hard work and everything they're doing. Because, yeah, I, I know it's not a trivial amount of effort and I think it's a decent sized team, but they're not a massive team either. So I think they're doing the best they can with what they have. Right. Now, from what I understand, cameras has been, I mentioned that earlier, has been kind of one of these areas where people are clamoring to see more support in HomeKit because the support is is really kind of limited right now. And so there's been some hope and, of course, then some rumors that we'll get more integration with security cameras, maybe have the ability to go back and look at past events from the cameras, not just get a live view and stuff like that. So that if there's integration with these products, you don't then 
have to just see, oh, okay, something's happening now, but to better understand it, I really need to go out to my other app, like Ring's app or Arlo's app. Oh, wait, those are two that aren't certified yet, but maybe they could be. There's been some reporting that Ring's devices that have been rumored to first be compatible with this uh, ecosystem are now on the certification list, right? They, that they are supposedly certified devices. These are the Ring Pro doorbell. That's, I believe, the third generation of the doorbell that they came out with. Or maybe it was the second one. I don't remember now, actually. And also, I believe it was the Spotlight Cam that they came out with that is also going to be compatible at some point. And they keep on saying that, yep, we're still on this. We haven't given up on this. So maybe this is a good sign for that. And then there was, uh, I think, a, kind of an accidental preview of Arlo potentially being compatible with that as well. So we could see this maybe at WWDC. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they hold things like this because they're waiting for an announcement or, or want to say, hey, these things are working now. So, yes, and I have all those devices in my house. I have an Arlo Pro <laughs> and I have a Ring doorbell and I have a security light. So I want this for all those things. And I bought them thinking that they would be HomeKit certified eventually. So nobody more excited about this than I. And I actually saw that in the Arlo app. It, it said something about HomeKit. And my guess is somebody made a mistake and pushed an app version too soon. And then that it was radio silent. So it, it said something about supporting HomeKit, but then you couldn't actually do it. So I don't know if the firmware hadn't gone out yet. It was definitely an app thing. Um, so hopefully that all that all gets uh, sorted out and rolled out to users soon here. I'm hoping that we see more broad support of devices from companies like Ring and others. I, I know that there are specific devices that get certified and that have been approved. Maybe that's, I like to think, maybe that's their testing ground. Maybe these are some of their more popular products. They want to see how they do before they invest the time in getting everything certified so that their other devices can also be HomeKit compatible. But once some devices are, I'm concerned that consumers will expect that all devices are from a given vendor. And, and so I hope what we see is once that we get past that hurdle for one device, then everything coming out after that point is just automatically going to be a part of the HomeKit ecosystem, whether it's immediately upon release or later, as we know some manufacturers have done, so that the Apple certification process doesn't hold them back. While I'm talking about this from a consumer perspective, I'd love to see that certification process either streamlined or somehow made more efficient for the developers because I hear interviewing companies many, many, many times that they're still working on certification when they have a product that they're trying to get out. And I understand that it's complicated and I understand that there are certain requirements they have to meet that are different from, say, certifying with Amazon or with Google, 
but I feel like we've got to get that improved somehow too. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the software off things certainly seem like a step in the right direction, but yeah, that doesn't mean that there aren't things they could do to make the process easier and smoother and easier for people to implement it. Because I think folks like you and I want to see it everywhere. We want to see every product implementing it. And I think sometimes there's competitive reasons why people don't do it. And that's why we haven't seen the likes of a, a Nest or somebody like that supporting it yet. But um, certainly if Ring puts out that now that they're under Amazon's corporate structure, that would certainly be a good sign and hopefully something that would encourage others who are more competitive with Apple to give that support as well. Now, you mentioned Siri earlier, and if voice is important to you in a home and you either have Siri-enabled devices or a, ho a HomePod as a dedicated speaker in your home where you have Siri to control devices in your home. Do you think we're going to see improvements that specifically impact HomeKit stuff this time? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. So one of the rumors here was that they would actually do um, something with the HomePod to respond to different users' voices, having kind of a multi-user mode. This would be interesting and I think would give some more capabilities like, you know, what are my scenes versus my wife's scenes? And if you say good night, then maybe you want something different to happen than your spouse or, you know, things like that. So I think that would be a nice step in the right direction. And yeah, I mean, I just would like to see any sort of improvement to Siri across the board. Hmm. Okay, you took that much further than I expected. Your suggestion would require that Apple is also doing something to multi-user enable HomeKit itself. And right now, a house's scenes are a house's scenes, not a person's scenes. Right. So they would have to make that far more complicated to be able to support individual users scenes or you know maybe favorites or something like that might might be a way to handle that i was thinking just something as simple as i could say i'm leaving my partner could say i'm leaving and it would be able to tell the difference and from that then determine okay the house is empty now yeah that would be nice. Yeah. I mean, I think multi-user stuff in general is there's a lot of work to be done on these common devices, things like Apple TV, iPad, you know, across the board, there are these multi-user devices, HomePod, that for the most part, Apple has been very single user focused. And so these common devices don't really have a good way of treating multiple people. So if they solve that problem on some of these other platforms, then maybe we'll see see the fruit of that in, in places like HomeKit and, and other experiences. Yep. All right. So last year, on a bridge between your old show, The Connected Home Show, and my show, Home On, we did a WWDC draft, and we predicted a bunch of stuff, and some of it didn't happen. For fun, do you want to go back and see whether we think the stuff that didn't happen is likely to happen again or happen at all this year? Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll throw the link to that 
show in the notes if anybody wants to revisit it. But it's kind of fun. And uh, I don't know, I, I kind of won in a big way. So now that Richard and I are doing a show <laughs> regularly, I didn't want to embarrass him like that again. So, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I thought it would be fun to kind of look back on some of the stuff that didn't happen and see if we think maybe it will. So kind of the first one there that we've already talked about, we can check off as pretty solid prediction is a home app refresh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Seems to be some smoke there and, and where there's smoke, there's fire. So hopefully that'll happen. Yep. The next one was uh, some sort of HomeKit experience on Apple TV. What do you think there? I don't think this is high on Apple's priority list. They've given us the ability to control HomeKit from Siri on Apple TV. And that seems to have met a lot of people's needs. The only thing that I think would probably be good as, I don't know how I would put this, but maybe some sort of experience that people would find useful on Apple TV might be notifications. For example, if someone rings your doorbell and it's associated with HomeKit or your camera picks something up and you want to maybe see a, a little screen with what's going on on that camera while it's noticing motion. I think something like that could be very useful, but I'd be surprised if this is something that they're focusing on at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything you said there. I don't see them necessarily doing a the same experience we're getting on the Mac and iPhone and iPad, but if they could do something differentiated, that would certainly be nice. Okay. Now, we talked about Siri maybe getting some improvements and that may be tying into HomeKit. We had predicted last time that there would be a better Siri. And I think we both agreed that we didn't get a better Siri last year. So this year, it looks like that's a possibility. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was encouraging last year was that some of the stuff that's going into shortcuts and enabling some of the stuff around shortcuts and Siri shortcuts may be kind of a background to training Siri to be better over time. So that's kind of the thing that gives me hope is that maybe everybody secretly did some work that was going to make Siri better in the long run. And so, you know, whether that's this year or, or in next year or whatever, that eventually they're going to say, Oh, guess what? You guys actually helped us make Siri better. And we've had all this data now locally on devices. And now, you know, here's Siri 2.0, 3.0. I don't know what version we're on. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I'd love to see? And I don't think we will see it. I would love to see them do what Google did and bring Siri interpretation, transcription, if you will, or whatever the opposite of transcription is, down to the device itself so that that doesn't have to happen on the cloud. I think that would be a really good move for them. Yeah, it would certainly tie into some of their objectives and keeping as much on device as possible. Yep. And then finally, I think the other thing that didn't really happen was any sort of HomeKit, HomePod tie-in. And and by that, what this was one of yours. And I think what you meant was the ability to control HomePod as part of home kit, like with scenes and stuff like that. And I don't think we still have that, do we? No, no. Really, the HomePod's only role is in 
access to Siri, controlling stuff, um, but it's not really a device itself. And I think the thought here was like the ability to play a sound when you open a door or, um, you know, have the HomePod play some music as part of a welcome home scene, something like that. Be able to actually trigger some sort of action with the device. What do you think? Think we'll see it? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think this. One- I think they need to get this eventually. I mean, we have this already from Echo devices. Yeah, I don't know that anybody's done this particularly well. So it would be a nice differentiator if they did. But I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> All right. Well. Anything else that you think we might see at WWDC that's important for the home? And yeah, I know dark mode's coming, but I, I don't think that's really all that important for home control. No, no, other than we'll see a dark mode version of the home app. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think every year they're just kind of moving the ball forward. And last year felt like a little bit of a down year with not a lot of improvements and, and major things done with HomeKit. So I'm going to be happy with a, you know, and like the, the HomeKit session was on the last day last year, which I felt like the where you are in the week is kind of the how big is your your updates and things like that. Yeah, it's like a, a TV show being relegated to Friday evening. You know, it's kind of like, all right, well, we're not going to get rid of it. We're just going to push it to the back here. Yeah. So if, if we get like a Tuesday or Wednesday uh, session, I'm going to feel good about that. So uh, just signs of life and, and moving forward and improvements and things like that. And certainly some of the stuff we've talked about, like a home app refresh and and some things like that would be a major sign that this is still a, a very big focus and something they're going to continue to be moving forward. So I think all signs are positive. And I just saw somebody post uh, in a, a group we're a part of, and maybe we'll include the link on here. There's a HomeKit Slack, and somebody said they're hiring on the engineering team, things like that. So I think those are all signs are pointing like things are healthy and things are moving forward in a good way. Good stuff. Uh, I know I will be watching the keynote, of course, and you will be there. So we will definitely be talking about this again in an episode following WWDC. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if we talked about this in the past, but one of the cool things they've done the last couple of years is actually have a podcast studio at WWDC. So I think that's actually where we recorded for your show, Richard, last year. So that's always fun. Uh, you know, they have a pretty good professional setup and the ability to have remote guests and things like that, which I think we did through FaceTime last year was kind of fun. Yep. So yeah, so that'll that'll be fun. And hopefully I'll be able to get a slot in for that and we can record something live from the WWDC floor. Sounds good. Okay. And so for our last segment... Um, we have a question that was sent in by developer, if you're not familiar with him, Aaron Pierce. And he asks, what are our thoughts on the state of third-party HomeKit apps and pricing? So I think this was maybe a semi-self-serving question for Aaron as he's in that space, but uh, we'll allow it. Yeah. And I think this is a legit question, right? Because you know when we were talking about Apple coming out with a HomeKit app of themselves named Home, 
one of the things we didn't mention was that there was already a third party app out there called Home that was, for all intents and purposes, known as the best and most comprehensive HomeKit app available for controlling, programming, and monitoring your HomeKit home. So there has been a good number of third-party developers kind of putting their own stuff out there. And Aaron is one of those. We've talked about Aaron's stuff on Home On, and I've written about his stuff at the Digital Media Zone. He has a number of different apps out there, like Home Run, which is newer. It allows you to run scenes directly from your Apple Watch. I love that he took that approach. It's very customizable. And, you know, he's not trying to give you a whole big list of all of your devices and let you scroll through them all on your watch. That's just nonsense. That doesn't work. So he's come up with a really cool solution there. He has, including an Apple TV app, an app called HomeCam that lets you monitor the cameras that you have on your HomeKit ecosystem or network. And that's a really cool app. I look forward to using that one once all my HomeKit cameras are actually compatible. Like, Once all your HomeKit cameras are HomeKit cameras? Yeah, exactly. My Arlo's <laughs> and my Rings and all that. Then, Aaron, I'm all over this app. Yeah, this is a great app. I love this. HomePass, which you told me about, HomePass is essentially a vault for maintaining all of your HomeKit codes because I don't know what your experience is, but you know, if you have some device that you've just stuck up in the ceiling or that you isn't easy to reach or maybe the code for it isn't even on the device. It's in the box and you have five of those and you have five boxes and which one came in what box. That's insane, right? So a good way to keep track of that is HomePass. And that's an app that he built. And then HomeScan, which allows you to kind of uh, get a good signal picture of your Bluetooth environment in your home and see maybe troubleshoot why some of your Bluetooth devices aren't behaving the way you might expect them to or responding as quickly or as reliably as you might want them to. So he's put a bunch of stuff out there and we'll give him that that free promo time there for the question. But I like the question because I think that there are a lot of apps out there that are trying to fill a gap. As you mentioned, Home, the app that comes from Apple, is kind of limited. It doesn't do everything. But it's a good dashboard. It's a good way of kind of scanning what's going on. And it gives you, you know, most of the basic everyday person control that you might need. But if you really want to go deep and do something more complicated, you almost always have to use a third party app of some sort. Eve, you have listed here. Eve is my go to now. If I want to do something, really complicated. They have continued to iterate on this app since day one. And they were amongst the first group of uh, products to come out that were home compatible. The Eve app has just gotten better and better and better. And its automation routine programming is really comprehensive and very powerful. Yeah, I think they're one that has really kept up with all the profiles and and kind of all the they have a pretty broad set of devices too. So I think that's part of it. They're they're supporting everything that they have, but it's not a huge adder for them to support everything else as well. So I think that's been good and one of the reasons they've done that. And I think you hit on something good here, which is that 
in a world where the home app exists, it kind of forces these other third-party devs to differentiate in some way. So right. go deep on something specific like Aaron did on, on HomeCam um, and do that one thing really well or do something different in terms of how you go broad or what is going to be your specialty. And, you know, I think that's been a good thing for the ecosystem as, you know, Apple put down their stamp and said, all right, we're going to be the go-to app for all the general stuff, but there's still a massive opportunity for other people to do other things really well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, earlier I mentioned the ConnectSense app. You guys went deep into that rules engine where, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, it appeared as if you just recursed through every single option that was available in the database and exposed it in a way that users could take advantage of settings that most people didn't even know were there to create really comprehensive rules that have conditional logic and and all sorts of attributes that otherwise get hidden by HomeKit because HomeKit can be very complex, but Apple's good at making complex stuff seem simple. And then there are apps like HomeDash and Wallflower that are specifically designed to kind of be dashboards that allow you to just get a kind of a dashboard glimpse of what's going on in your home or in the case of Wallflower in your room, in a specific room. So there are many developers coming out with different types of apps. And like you said, specializing. I want to talk about pricing. That's one of the things that Aaron asked about. And I think it's something that every developer struggles with. We all know that for whatever reason, we have this mentality now that apps should either be free or only cost a couple of bucks. That's just kind of the world that we live in now. If you bought a physical device, then that app had better be free. If anyone is charging you for the app associated with a physical device, like there's going to be hell to pay from your users. They're not going to be happy about that. Which, by the way, it's not free to develop apps. You know, it takes a team and work and right. updating and dedication and things like that. Like it's a big part of it. So you better sell some hardware to support that. Right. But in the case of folks like Aaron and these other developers that are putting out apps where it's just the app, like this is their product, then that pricing model just doesn't work to support a team that builds stuff like this. And so you see some developers like the developer of HomeDash and the developer of Wallflower putting much higher prices on that a lot of customers might balk at. And I think what we're seeing is developers trying to test different pricing models to see what's going to work out there. And I don't know what the answer is. I know that I'm just as, I'll use the word guilty as anyone for having this expectation that an app should cost a couple of bucks. Right. And I know, you know, Aaron's apps, Aaron's app are apps are generally a couple of bucks. And I think that's completely reasonable. He his are not just one dollar apps, and I don't think they should be. I, I think they are worth the extra money that you pay for them. 
I think that we also see developers who are starting to experiment with subscription models. And I know that there's a lot of pushback about that. I push back on that. I don't even want to, I will not even consider paying a subscription for something unless I know that there is some ongoing service that that costs the company money to maintain to keep my app running. Otherwise, I'm not interested. I'm just not going to do it. I talked on a recent episode of How Mon about not wanting to spend a dollar a month for Chamberlain's subscription fee to use IFTTT. Yeah. Just because it, it, it almost seems petty. Right. Like I, I, on their part and on my part for not doing I, it. I didn't get that move <laughs> from them. I thought, I don't know. I think that one's just a flex because they own the market and so they can. And so they did. But yeah, I, I didn't get that move from them. So I think it's just messy. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Obviously, you're coming with hardware to the game. So you have a different perspective on this. But if you weren't, if you were just doing software for some reason, how do you how do you work in this model where, like you said, you have to pay developers, you have to support the work that you're doing, and the model that we have today just doesn't enable that? Yeah, and I think that's a little bit of where Apple came in and, and added the support for subscriptions. And I know myself personally, I have a handful of subscriptions I do pay. Some of them are for additional features. I think that's something that some apps do really well where you get this base experience for free. And then if you subscribe, you get more features and things like that. And maybe those are things that require servers or, you know, things that cost money. So I don't mind that per se, but I do think some of these apps that are charging a ton of money, that's a, I don't know, hard pill to swallow. And, you know, unless you're providing a ton of value, which that's kind of a big gamble when, unless it's an in-app purchase and you have some way to try it out, how are you going to know you're going to get that value before you plunk down, you know, double digit dollars for, for an app? Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And what is, what is Wallflower trying to charge? Wallflower is actually asking an annual $50 subscription fee for anything beyond monitoring. You can monitor anything through their system, but to configure it and to be able to control devices, you need their subscription service. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous to me. Now, for them, they're targeting a different market than your average app store consumer. They are going for built-in, in-wall control devices that would likely be handled by an installer. Okay. So $50 on top of the price of an iPad may not be much of anything for that market. But for a general market, I personally think that price is a non-starter for like a hobbyist or a consumer. Right. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it, it, it depends on what context somebody is buying something like that. And if, you know, if it's more of a installer context where there's a, a huge bill for all the hardware they're putting in and, and the things that app is doing, then obviously what's 50 bucks a year if you're spending thousands of dollars on stuff. But right. So in that perspective, I think they, you know, they're looking at it at a different market. But I also think, and this is something that this is challenging. Like most of these apps that we've talked about so far, 
except for obviously those that came from hardware, most of them have come from individuals who do this as a side thing. This is not their only thing. They either make a bunch of apps and make side money on it or have an app and make side money on it. I don't know that any of these that we've discussed are people who do this as a full-time job. Right. And part of that is because it, this financial model won't support a full-time income on just a small handful of apps that don't do some creative pricing. Right. But I know in the case of Wallflower, that's coming from someone who has worked as part of an agency that develops custom software. So they're in the mindset of, we have a team of people we have to pay to be able to continue to maintain and improve this software. Unfortunately, that's a disconnect with the way that most consumers approach their app use. Right. Well, and I think they'll probably find that if they would have dropped the price more, they would have gotten, they're going to find a lot more customers for it. Although the interesting thing about being a subscription is they do have the ability to offer a trial. So I'd yep. be a lot more willing to try something like that where I can cancel the subscription before I get paid a fee than just plopping right. down $12 or something else for an app that it's yours once you bought it. Yep, absolutely. So I don't know if we've really solved anything here, Adam, but certainly it's an interesting discussion to be had and something that I think developers in the space need to really think about as they're defining their own pricing plans. Yeah. And I definitely want to go into this more in the future. And uh, I'll definitely invite Aaron to be on the show and, and discuss this with us. All right. Well, if, if you have a smart home question, you can send it our way with the hashtag Ask Smart Home Show. Just use that on Twitter and we will find that and we'll hopefully pick up your question for a future episode. Okay. So, Richard, where can everybody find you on the internet? Best place to find me, I think you already teased this up front, is at Richard Gunther. You'll get me and a handful of other personalities that are all in my brain. And we talk about the stuff that we're doing. So that's usually writing or podcasting or consulting. And if you have any interest in that, all the links will be in that place. How about you, Adam? Where do people find out what you're up to? So you can check out our website at connectsense.com and you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice, where you can follow along next week and see all of uh, my thoughts and goings-ons at WWDC. And then the Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm, where you can find other tech podcasts, including hometech.fm, the Smart Kitchen Show, and Richard Show, and, and more. You can find all of those great podcasts in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or, or wherever else you get your, your podcasts. So thanks for joining us in this episode of The Smart Home Show, and we'll be back again after WWDC.